Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. Once again, it's a joy to turn together to God's Word, and we're looking to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. If you've been with us over the past month or so, you know that we've been looking at Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul had called the Ephesians and, and called us to walk worthy of our calling in Christ. Now, as a reminder, what is our calling in Christ? Our calling in Christ is to be part of His one people, reconciled to each other and reconciled to God and to to dwell together with him for all eternity. And so Paul has called us then. How do we walk worthy of this calling? By living in unity with one another in Christ and by living in righteousness and holiness before him. And right at the end of of chapter 4, Paul had, had spelled out some very practical ways that we walk in righteousness and holiness in our language and in our actions And that discussion is really going to continue as we move into chapter 5. Here in chapter 5, Paul's going to talk again and again about how we ought to walk as God's children. This morning, we're going to begin to look at how we ought to walk with verses 1 through 6. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to follow along as we read from Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving it to us. Now, would you use it? in our hearts, by the power of your Spirit, to make us more like you, for the glory of your name. And we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. The combination of social and political events brought unprecedented conflict. Cities everywhere experienced riots. The church was split by division and disagreement. Nations had conflict and wars broke out. And then on top of it all, there was the pandemic. Now, I'm not talking about 2020. I'm actually talking about the 14th century. The 14th century was called the calamitous century by historians. And it was in this context that a boy named Thomas was born in Kempen, Germany. He grew up in this chaos, but he did not respond with cynicism or self-protection 
His focus and his response in the early years of the 15th century can be summarized by the title of his book. It's a book that has gone through over 2,000 editions, printed in over 50 languages, a book which John Wesley called the best summary of the Christian life he'd ever read. I'm referring to Thomas Akempis' book, The Imitation of Christ. Imitating Christ was Thomas's response to the chaos around him. And when we jump into Ephesus in the first century, it was Paul's call to the Christians there as well. His argument is that since God's children have been remade in God's image, they ought to imitate him and his son. Imitating God is going to involve a number of things, and it's going to be spelled out over the course of Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be called to imitate God in love, not lust, in light, not darkness, in wisdom, not folly. These will be our subjects in the weeks to come. But this morning, we want to focus on verses 1 through 6, where we'll look at Paul's call to imitate God and to walk in love. So let's begin right at the beginning. Paul calls us to imitate God. And Paul's summons is rooted once again in our identity in Christ. If we've put our faith in Jesus, we have been united to him and adopted along with him as beloved children of God. And as we know, imitation is what children do. We've seen children imitate those around them, imitate their parents. Often children walk or laugh like their parents do. Sometimes young kids want to dress like their parents. And of course, children tend to respond in situations like their parents do, sometimes to our dismay and embarrassment. But of course, and some of you may have had the grief of having a, a poor example in a father in this life, and you may be doing your best not to imitate him. But that is not the case with God. As Paul points out, we are beloved children of our Heavenly Father who have Him as our perfect Father. And we're called to imitate Him and His Son, Jesus, who perfectly lived out the character of God in human flesh among us. Now, you know what it means to imitate someone. It it means to copy someone, to mimic someone. If you're in that stage of maybe 9 to 12 years old, it's a great way to annoy people. You, you imitate them. You copy everything they say or do. But if you're in an apprenticeship where you're learning by imitating a master craftsman, you follow their example. You, you don't just generally observe what they're doing. No, you watch them. You watch their technique and try to imitate it with their instruction. Then you do your own work, producing work that looks like the master's work because you have followed their example. And Paul's point is that as beloved children, we are called into a long-term glorious apprenticeship in which we are imitating God himself who has recreated us in his likeness, that we might live according to his character and wisdom and in holiness and justice and goodness and in truth. And Paul's point is not a new one at all. If you think back to the Old Testament, maybe you would think of Leviticus 19 where God said to Israel, be holy as I am holy. He called them to imitate him. Maybe you think of Jesus where he repeatedly called his disciples to be like God. Maybe you think of of Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you 
so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil as well as the good. Jesus isn't saying here that we're saved by our works or we become children if we do the right works. No, he's saying that imitating the character of God our Father is part and parcel of being his child. Imitating him is how we live out being his sons and daughters. And of course, it's, it's no surprise to us at all that Jesus, who is God himself, most perfectly lived out God's character and gave us the most complete picture of what it looks like to imitate God as a human being. So that Thomas Akempis, in the work we talked about at the beginning, could say this, we must imitate Christ's life and his ways if we are to be truly enlightened and set free from the darkness of our own hearts. So let it be the most important thing we do then to reflect on the life of Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, Paul's first word to us is to imitate God and his son Jesus as beloved children. But just like any good teacher, Paul doesn't just stop with the general principle. He goes on to give us specific examples. What does it look like to imitate God? Well, first, it means to walk in love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now I think God's love may be his attribute that shines most clearly and consistently from the pages of Scripture. Now, I have to be careful whenever you say one of his attributes is more clear than another, for his whole character is displayed there. But just think about God's love shown from the first pages of Scripture to the last. Maybe you think of Deuteronomy chapter 7, where God reminds Israel that he didn't call them to be his people because they were better than others, but because he loved them. Maybe you think of the Psalms. In the Psalms alone, God's steadfast love for his people is referred to 127 times. Maybe you think of Hosea chapter 11, where God declares, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Adding that despite Israel's sin and rebellion, God's heart is moved within him, and his compassion grows warm and tender for his people. Maybe you think of John 3.16. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Or maybe you think of 1 John 4, which set God's own actions up as the very definition of love. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. From God's gracious Love to cover Adam and Eve in their sin in the garden and give them hope of redemption to his love and care for Abraham and his descendants to sending his own son to the cross that he might justly forgive and cleanse and redeem his people. God walks thoroughly and completely in steadfast love. We're the recipients of that love. And now as God's children, we're called to walk in the same love in our lives. And Paul says that Christ's love, Christ is God's son, his love is evident chiefly in that fact that he gave himself up for us. What does love look like? What does it mean to love? Well, we see it chiefly in Christ giving himself up for us. 
And I think that's really the essence of love in so many ways. We, we may at times be willing to give up money for others or maybe time, but are we willing to give ourselves for others? When I think of 1 Corinthians 13, that famous love chapter, think about how God's or how Paul describes love there. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant nor rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Why does Paul describe love this way? Why are these things set off limits and and out of character of love? Because they're all self-focused responses. They're all defending ourselves. And so God calls us to repent whenever we see our self asserting itself in envy or boasting or arrogance or rudeness or insisting on our way or irritability and anger. And instead to imitate God in his love in Christ, which is defined at its core by giving himself up for us. Now this may be easy to state as a principle. Give ourselves up for others. This can be very difficult. When a person is standing in front of us who has hurt us or offended us or ignored us or abandoned us, maybe we look in our hearts and we say, I have no motivation to love this person and give myself up for them. But I want you to notice Paul's beautiful statement at the end of verse 2 when he notes, what, what was it that motivated Christ to give himself up for us? was that he was offering himself as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And that is our same focus and motivation. We give ourselves up for one another, not just for one another's sake, but for the sake of our God. And we may find it difficult at times to be motivated to love someone who has hurt us. But do we not have an eternal redemption's motivation to please God? Do we not long for our lives to be a fragrant offering, a sweet-smelling offering to our God and Savior? And the way we please Him is by giving up ourselves and our rights or our vindication in joyful sacrifice to others to walk in love like Him for His sake. So Paul calls us to be imitators of God, to walk in love following the example of Christ. But then as we move on to verse 3, not only are we to imitate God in Christ-like love, but Paul also tells us how we are not to walk. We are not to walk in the sinful perversions of love. And this is what we come to in verses 3 and 4. Paul calls us away from sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness that Paul says should not even be named among you. Now these three terms, I think, belong together here. Sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness are referring to a a group of responses and behaviors that are, are perversions of love that are to be put off. Sexual immorality and impurity are a broad statement when these two are paired together that refer to any type of sexual activity that is impure or out of bounds, that is outside the one place that God created it for. A marriage between one man and one woman. But then Paul adds covetousness to the list. And this is very important. Because covetousness is desiring the activity that is prohibited. You know what it is to covet, right? You, you want something that God has said no to. Either he said no to it in his law, or he has said no to it for you at this time. by right? Not giving it to you. And what Paul's doing is he's saying that the activity itself 
is sinful, but so is desiring the activity that God has said no to. Paul's really just echoing the Ten Commandments here. You know how in the Ten Commandments, the Seventh Commandment says you shall not commit adultery. The activity of sin is prohibited. But then in the Tenth Commandment, he says, and you shall not covet or desire your neighbor's wife. Both the activity and the desire for it is prohibited. It's the same thing Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount when he says that a man who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so you see what the point is. That any sexual activity or impurity outside of God's bounds is itself sin and so is the desire for it. The activity and the desire for something that God forbids is a sin. This is a high standard. And then Paul takes it even a step further. He says these things should not be done. They shouldn't be desired, but they shouldn't even be named among you. And he clarifies or, or adds to this, saying that filthiness, foolish talk, or crude joking are out of place for the saints. This list includes making light of or laughing at what God considers evil. And it, and it is talking with no boundaries or respect for what is right or wrong. These things, Paul says, are not proper among God's people or are out of place among the saints. And my guess is that we all know what it feels like to feel out of place. You ever been in a situation where you felt out of place, that you didn't belong? Maybe it was, maybe it was a business meeting and everyone else in the business meeting was two pay grades above you and you felt out of your depth. Maybe you traveled to another country and stepped off the plane and you had no one who spoke English and everyone was talking differently than you and acting differently and you just, you felt out of place. Or maybe you moved to a new state and you showed up on the first day of school to a new school and you know no one and everyone talks differently than you and likes different things than you and you feel out of place. It's that jarring discomfort that I don't belong here. I'm different. I'm out of place. Well, that's how sexual immorality committed, desired, or made light of in our conversation or entertainment ought to feel for the believer in Christ. It all ought to feel out of place. And the Bible's point here is not to set out some sort of better-than-thou restrictive standard. The Bible's point is to say that allowing sin's foot in the door, even in our conversation, to diminish our hatred of what God hates in any way, sows dangerous seeds in our lives and is not proper for the saints. I love the way Sinclair Ferguson puts it. He says, remember that every day we are in a spiritual war and our language should never stimulate interest in the sinful because just like in all wars, careless talk costs lives. He says, we can easily be desensitized to the sinful by what has become normal in our society, but Christ like love, ought to suffocate every instance of sexual immorality. Now I think we have to pause here. And as we think over God's call against sexual immorality and impurity, as well as the desire for those things and the naming of these things, we have to acknowledge our own sin. But in our guilt, we have only a few options. We can push back and say, hey, God's word is out of date or it's making too big of a deal of these things. And we would say that to our peril. We could 
We could despair and give up trying also to our peril. Or can we, we can return to the core truths of the gospel and find hope. See, Christ has died in our place. Yes, we are sinners. We know our sin, but Christ has died for us. And if we confess our sins, he has said that he will be faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that is the key. That is hope. When we know our sin, we have a great Savior who welcomes us to repent and to confess our sin and find forgiveness and hope in him. But that repentance and confession is key. Do we recognize our sin? Do we hate it and repent of it and seek forgiveness in Christ? Or do the things that we watch and listen to, the links we click on, the thoughts we give free reign to in our minds, the actions in our life, do they feed our flesh and our desire to indulge what God has said no to and so presume upon him? Now this may seem like a challenge, God has set up a high and holy standard for us to walk in love and imitate God. We have hope in Christ when we confess and repent to him. But we also have hope because Paul, at the end of verse 4, gives us a wonderful tool, a key for pursuing righteousness instead of sin. And I don't want us to miss it here. You see what he says. He says, there shouldn't be filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place but instead, thanksgiving. Now, maybe we think, well, thanksgiving, thanksgiving, that's a holiday and there's cornucopias and fruit. What does that have to do with coveting and and, and sexual immorality? But thanksgiving here is the key to undercut both covetousness and lust. See, coveting is desiring what we do not have. It's desiring what God has said no to, again, either in his law or by not giving it to us right now. But giving thanks is, is praising God for all of his goodness that he has given us. And it is very difficult to be coveting something else when our hearts are overwhelmed with thankfulness and gratitude for what God has given us and done for us. And so the next time that sexual temptation knocks, may we be quick to cultivate grateful hearts, remembering and naming the goodness of God May we be quick to repent of any discontentment or ingratitude or complaining or coveting desire that opens the door for temptation. But I think Paul's summons here actually goes a step further and is particularly significant when it comes to sexual sin. Because Paul has just reminded us that all sexual pleasure pursued outside of marriage between one man and one woman is something that God has said no to. And it can be easy for us to be discontent with that. And so again, thanksgiving undercuts sin. Because instead of desiring what God has said no to, we can respond by thanking Him for making sex what it is. Something beautiful that reflects His own character and His love. Something to be honored and cherished and protected just as He created it to be. And if we have that idea of gratitude and thanksgiving, then this gratitude and value and thanksgiving that we place on God's good gift will undermine any arrogance in our hearts that might lead us to think that we know better than he does what we need. See, pursuing any sexual activity outside of God's created plan for us is to act just like Adam and Eve in the garden. 
It is to pursue what he has set off limits for our good, thinking we know better or have found something we actually need despite God's instructions. And that is nothing less than rebellion that deserves God's wrath. That is a heavy word, but it is just what Paul affirms then in verses 5 through 7. And these verses are the only just conclusion of what Paul has just said. And so Paul begins verse 5 with an emphasis of certainty. You may be sure of this. There is no doubting. There is no questioning. There is no lack of clarity. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, who commits sexual sin or desires it or pursues it, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Now again, it's important for us to remember God's word tells us that many of us have struggled with sin. We know, we know the reality of our sinful hearts. And as we repent and run to Christ, there is forgiveness that can be found. And so Paul is talking about those who are sexually immoral or covetous, whose pattern of life and pursuit is not repentant in it, who continues to move ahead. And Paul, in these verses, highlights God's justice to punish such sin as a warning for us and as a motivation for our holiness. You know, these words about God's wrath coming on our sin are like one of those signs you come across on the highway when there's road construction. You know those signs that say, warning, lane closed ahead, merge left. Of course, usually there's three or four of these signs before you actually get to the lane closure. So if you're like me, sometimes you zip past the first one and you think, yeah, no consequences yet. I'm zipping along in my lane quite nicely here. I don't, I don't think I'm going to merge left yet. Sometimes that's the way we act in our sin too. We commit sin and we think, hey, I didn't see any bad consequences. I'm zipping along in a great way here. And so I'm just going to keep going. But just like the lane closed, merge left signs, if we continue in our activity, we are going to come to a dead end. To blast through these warnings is to imperil your life and the lives of others. And so God in his goodness has given us his word as a warning to us and a motivation to us to change lanes, to get over, to repent of sin and the rebellion that leads to God's wrath. And instead, to submit ourselves to God in obedience and trust that we might pursue walking in love through faith in Christ. Well, this morning, I've tried to cover the details and the meaning of this text. But given our current cultural voices, it's easy to find the Bible's standards restrictive. We may feel like the Bible is not credible here. Maybe given our experience, we think that God's word is, is unreasonable or off base. And so we need to be reminded of why God's word sets the standard it does. And I don't have time to go into all of that this morning. I'll be away much of this week and, and Pastor Collins will preach next Sunday. But the week after, I'm going to come back to this text so we can understand why God's word has set the standard as he has. But as we close this morning, I want to mention two words of application for us. First, as I reflected on this passage, I was struck by how much our obedience or our disobedience in this area 
impacts our witness for the gospel. I was remembering a close friend of mine who, after college, shared with me his experience in basic training. He went through basic training and he was not aware of anyone else in his class who was a Christian. And he shared with me how astounded all of his fellow recruits were to find out that he was sexually pure as a 23-year-old. Now they laughed at him. They said he was weird. But his testimony of faith had a fragrance of credibility. His faith in Christ reflected the power of God and of his word that could not be denied in his testimony. Consider the flip side. Consider when professing Christians pursue sexual pleasure outside of marriage. Consider when we hear stories like Ravi Zacharias, who defended the gospel worldwide, but were then discovered to have been regularly and actively involved in sexual sin and abuse. You know, Russell Moore, commenting on Ravi Zacharias, wrote, Many in our culture are not just opposed to the church because it is faithful to God's word. Many in our culture are opposed to the church because they have evidence that the church doesn't seem to believe its own doctrinal and moral teachings. And that leaves them suspicious that Jesus is just a means to power, prestige, or a political agenda. The hypocrisy, which is so, so boldly evident in this area of sexuality, is devastating to the reputation of Christ in his church. Maybe some of you this morning find yourself wrestling with this very hypocrisy in the church and wondering whether God's word is really credible. And if that's where you are this morning, I would encourage you to read through Paul's letters and John's letters and read about many who abandoned the faith after professing it, who shipwrecked their faith by pursuing sin. See, we've been told to expect these hypocrisies in the church, in this world, in the spiritual warfare that is taking place. These hypocrisies should grieve us, but they should not surprise us. And we should also remember that over against these very public stories are the genuine lives of faithfulness and self-sacrifice motivated by the death and resurrection of Jesus, the genuine pursuit of holiness from a love of God, and lives radically changed and recreated by the power of God's Spirit. See, the gospel is quite credible, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, and the presence of some who profess but live a lie does not undermine the faithfulness and the credibility of God and of His salvation in Christ, or the power of His Spirit, It's delivered in his word and seen in the lives of his people all around the world, even though they don't make the headlines. But what's at stake for us, brothers and sisters, is not just making Christianity more attractive. What's at stake for us is the glory of God and the honor of the name of Jesus Christ. We know that God is sovereign. He will find a way to gather and care for his sheep. But the way we live will either be a testimony to the gospel and glory of God or not. And may this be a motivation for us to hate sin and pursue holiness as imitators of God. Finally, let me end with Paul's own summons. To strive with all our strength to imitate God while trusting in the sufficient work of Christ on our behalf. You know, we began this morning that 
by saying that if we are in Christ, we are in a glorious apprenticeship, learning from and imitating God himself. Now, I wonder how you would respond if you saw a poster for an apprenticeship to become a neurosurgeon. And if that poster said, spend 10 minutes most days, check in when you want to, and commit an hour most weeks, and you'll be a neurosurgeon in no time. I don't want that guy touching my brain. But wouldn't we say that imitating God and becoming holy as he is holy is far more lofty a task than becoming a neurosurgeon? If we're going to learn his habits and his desires and his behaviors and his speech and his loves and his hates, and we're going to make them our own, our eyes must constantly be on him. We must constantly be with him. As the commentator John Stott reminded us, he said, holiness is not a condition into which we drift. We are not passive spectators while God works in us. We must be actively engaged, constantly with our God, thinking on Him in His Word, with His people, listening to Him, if we are going to imitate Him and walk in love like Christ. That is a daunting task, perhaps, when we see who we are and who we are called to be. But here is our confidence. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ is coming again. And Christ invites anyone who knows their sin and confesses their need of a Savior to look to Him alone in faith. His death takes the wrath that we deserve. His blood makes us clean. His Spirit remakes us in His image and begins to enable us more and more to live for Him. And this God who calls us is the one who said that He who began the good work in us will complete it at the day of Christ. And so I end with Paul's prayer from Ephesians chapter 3 that we read a few weeks ago. May God our Father strengthen us in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that being rooted and grounded in love, we may have the strength to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God to the glory of his name. Let's pray. Our God, you have done a miracle in coming to sinful sinful hearts, to those of us who were born in sin and enslaved to sin, dead in sin. And through the death and resurrection of Christ, you have made us alive through faith in him. You have united us to him so that your spirit is now recreating us more and more to live according to your likeness. Would you strengthen us this week to imitate you, to walk in love after the pattern of Christ, to glorify your name. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry 
the Westminster Pulpit.